0: In this episode, I say the brown word a lot. Just giving you a warning. What will happen to Captain Brown? And what will happen to the rest of the crew? And what will happen to William Mariner? And is there a slight possibility that maybe Dixon is still alive? Let's find out on the second episode of the Toki Yukamea podcast. Before I continue with this episode, let's do a recap from last week. In the last episode, we learned about the origins of the Port-au-Prince. It was originally a slave ship used to transport slaves from the African continent to the New World. It originally belonged to the French, but it was captured by the British just off the coast of Haiti and renamed the Porto prince after the capital of Haiti. In 1805, the Port-au-Prince was bought by a London shipping magnate, and his name was Robert Bent, and he turned it into a privateer. It was then recommissioned to raid ships in Spanish colonial towns, and they were doing this on the Pacific side of the South American continent, so from Chile to Peru and eventually Mexico. On their downtime, the Porto Prince was hunting whales for oil. While in Mexico, the captain of the Porto Prince, Captain Duck, died of a sudden illness, and he was buried in Mexico in August of 1806. The master whaler, known in the book as Mr. Brown, becomes the new captain, and the ship was such in a bad shape and needed repairs, and so he came up with a plan. He was going to take the Porto Prince to Hawaii, then to Tahiti, and then to Australia and from there to England. On the way to Hawaii, the ship had some massive leaks, taking in 17 feet of water per day. The Porto prince made it to Hawaii and spent a month there and repaired the leaks and then reprovisioned for the next leg of their trip. And they departed for Tahiti. And on their way to Tahiti, the ship was leaking again. And to make matters worse, the pumps were only working every half hour. And so they threw over the cannons, they threw over the tri-work, It's the oven that they use to melt the whale fat into oil, and as they were doing that, the winds and the currents pushed them further and further west, and they ended up in the waters of Tonga. And on the 29th of November, the Porto Prince anchored in Lifuka Haapai, and Lifuka Haapai was familiar to Mariner, actually in the book he talks about this. Because this is where Captain Cook anchored in 1785, and uh, Captain Cook spent about three months in Thong. So then they're greeted by the Tongans with puakatunu, uh, which is a roast pig, and with ufi, and they had a translator with them. He was a Hawaiian man by the name of Tuitui. Tuitui Tui was on an American ship that took him from Hawaii to Manila in the Philippines and then on their way back, they dropped him off in Tonga. And so he knew how to speak English and he also knew how to speak Tongan. When the portal Prince departed from Hawaii, they took with them eight uh, crewmen from Hawaii. And so as all of this was happening, they were telling Captain Brown that uh, they don't feel really good about this situation and that these Tongans don't have uh, good intentions. And then we just witness a series of unfortunate events. The crew are just fed up with Mr. Brown, and he's trying to make them work on a day when they should be resting. And so some of the crewmen end up leaving the ship, and they go ashore and frolic with the natives. And you know, the natives are doing the best that they can to tempt them to leave the ship. And meanwhile, the Hawaiians are just like, no, no, don't do this. This is not good. And nobody was listening to them. And then Captain Brown has a meeting with one of the chiefs, and while they're meeting below deck, uh, the warriors are starting to come on the boat, and they're bringing their clubs and their spears. Meanwhile, the crewmen that remained on the ship are like scared shitless, and they go and tell the captain about what was happening. And Captain Brown's like, yeah, okay, I'll come check it out. And sure enough, the crewmen were right. There they all were, these Tongans holding their clubs and their spears. And they're all like, (laughs) ha ha. And the captain's, uh, what the hell's going on? And then they were like, oh, nothing. We'll just put our clubs and spears away. And so that's what they proceeded to do. And then Captain Brown's like, okay, hey, I'm a good sport. I'll also remove some of our weapons. And so he had his crewmen remove the muskets and the pikes. And nobody died that day. Yet. So then later that night, uh, the crewman asked the captain to place a patrol on the deck and arm them just to make sure those damn Tongans don't come back on the ship that night. And he was like, no, we don't need to do that. Let's just all go to bed. And they went to bed. And fortunately, nothing happened. But then the next morning, those pesky Tongans, they were up so early, which is very unusual because, you know, we sleep in a lot. But they were so up early and they were already on deck. About 300 very persistent Tongans. And then the crewmen are all getting nervous. And uh, Captain Brown, oh gosh, Captain Brown. So Tui Tui comes on the ship and invites Captain Brown to a walking tour. And Captain Brown's like, oh, that's a fantastic idea. Let me get my things and uh, let me grab my shoes and my suntan lotion. And his crew's like begging him, hey, take a gun with you, take something, arm yourself, protect yourself. And uh, Captain Brown's like, nah, I don't need to do that. These are the friendly islanders. So then Captain Brown leaves on his tour with Tui Tui. And uh, William Mariner is below the deck in the steerage and he's working. And then he hears some commotion. He hears shouting. I imagine he probably is hearing like, you know, or something like that. You know how we go crazy and make noises. And then he's coming out of the steerage and he looks up and he sees Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon was in that meeting that was held the day earlier when uh, Captain Brown was meeting with two of the Tongan chiefs and Mariner was there because he was the captain's clerk. Anyway, so he hears all this commotion. He's, Coming out of the steerage and as he looks up, he witnesses Mr. Dixon get a club right on the head. And that's why this episode is called Oops Upside Your Head. Say oops upside your head, 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 say oops upside
1: your head, say
0: oops I imagine this scene like in you know so a Hollywood movie where it's like slow motion, and Mariner is looking up and he's seeing this club that is just like moving slowly, and then boom, impact with Mister Dixon's head. And meanwhile, Mariner is like screaming in slow motion, no. And then blood is just splattering everywhere. And scene. I really should be a director. So then Mariner decides to go the other way. It's not safe on deck. And one of the Tongan men tried to grab him, but he was able to free himself. And he was able to make his way to the gun room. On his way to the gun room, he finds the Cooper a cooper is a person that's trained to make the wooden casks and barrels and remember uh that the port au prince was also hunting whales and so so mariners now with the cooper and they decided to run to the magazine and the magazine is a part of the ship where they store ammunition while they were hiding in the magazine they came up with a plan they would blow up the ship and then sacrifice themselves in the process so sounds honorable yeah so in order to do this mariner uh, needed to get to the gun room and he needed to get some flint and steel but he wasn't able to get to the muskets because remember the night before when captain brown ordered that all their arms that were on deck be removed well the crew didn't do it nicely they just kind of threw it down below deck and so in the gun room was a huge pile of pikes And Mariner couldn't navigate himself around the pikes to get to the parts that he needed so that he could blow up the ship. Meanwhile, the Cooper is just like totally crapping his pants and getting nervous and panicking. And then he starts to get cold feet about this plan. And so all of a sudden, you know, killing themselves didn't seem so cool anymore. You know what I hate? I hate people like the Cooper. People that are undecisive, who can't get their shit together together when there's like a bad situation. And I honestly, if I was Mariner, you know, Mariner was young. I'm sure probably a lot younger than this Cooper. But if I was Mariner at that time, I probably would have found a knife and just stabbed him and get it over with. And then uh, what happens next, you know, just really tells me that Mariner, as young as he was, was just uh, so much more mature than this Cooper. And then even as you read his book uh, and you read his reflections on his experience in Tonga, um it's just a get tell he's a very intelligent guy so you know back to the cooper so he's not doing any anything useful and so mariner is the one that has to do all the thinking for them and he proposes hey let's just go up on deck and let's be killed quickly and get it over with i would have done the same exact thing let's just go and get it done and the cooper is like yeah are you sure you know very very hesitant But then he finally agreed and Mariner, the 15 year old, leads them up to the deck. You know, this Cooper, he better had been like a 10 year old kid um, because a grown ass adult who can't get their shit together at a time of crisis, those you're useless. You're useless to society okay so they sneak their way to the gun room they go back to the gun room and there is a floor hatch above the gun room which leads them to the captain's quarters they open the floor hatch and they take a peek and guess who is standing in the captain's quarters that bastard tui tui you remember tui tui he was the one that came and asked captain brown if he wanted to take a walking tour of the island well this bastard is now standing in the captain's quarters Oh, and look who's there with him, Vakautapola. So remember that day before, Captain Brown had a meeting with two chiefs from Tonga. One was Vakautapola and the other chief was unnamed. Well, looky there, him and uh, Tui Tui are standing in the captain's quarters and they are rummaging through Captain Brown's things. And in Tongan, we call that hakule. And if there is one thing that Tongan mothers hate the most, is when you go and hakule through their things. And so both of their backs were turned to the floor hatch, so they couldn't see Mariner. But then Mariner just decided to jump out, and he raised his hands in the air, and he wanted to show them that he was unarmed. And to Tui, Tui he said, aloha. You know, remember Tui is from Hawaii. And so that was the first thing that he said to him, and and Mariner asked Tuitui Tui if they were going to kill him, and he wanted Tuitui Tui to know that he was ready to die. And Tuitui Tui replied to him that it was the will of the chief that he should not be harmed and that they have already taken over the ship. asked Mariner who was below the ship and Mariner replied that it was just him and the cooper and the cooper came up and both he and Mariner were escorted back to the deck and as they proceeded to the deck Mariner witnessed just the aftermath of the carnage and as he was witnessing this a Tongan native um, described as about 50 years old and he had a crewman's jacket covered in blood just thrown over one shoulder, while resting his club made of ironwood. In Tonga, we call that toa, um, and in many other islands of the Pacific, they either call it toa or koa. But uh, so he's standing there, covered in blood, holding one of the articles of clothing from the crewman, uh, holding his jacket, and his club is just completely covered in blood and brain tissue, and he's just holding this club on the other shoulder. So picture this man holding a club on one shoulder and then the jacket that belonging to one of the crewmen in the other. And the club is just covered with brain tissue and blood. So when Mariner documented his account of his four years in Tonga, this was one of the things that he remembered was just this, um, you know, he was scared by this man. Um, And not only that, but the man appeared to have some kind of a nerve disorder. And so he had a twitch in his left eye. And then he was also having convulsions on the left side of his mouth. So, you know, this old man, either he had some, he was born with some kind of a nerve disorder, or it's so typical of uh, warriors and men back in those days to have some kind of injury and this is something that was documented by a lot of the european um, explorers and i wouldn't be surprised if this old man was like hit in the face at one time with a club or in the head which caused the left side of his face to go paralyzed but imagine if you're a kid and you're from london and you're in this island your ship just got attacked and everyone on the crew is pretty much dead And then here is this man, and he, you know, just kind of has a scary look to him. And, of course, that's something that you're going to always remember. I think even worse for Mariner is what he saw next. And he, on the deck, he witnessed um, dead bodies. So there was 22 dead bodies. They were all laid side by side. All of the bodies showed signs of head trauma that was consistent with uh, being beaten with clubs. And Mariner, out of the 22 bodies, could only recognize two or three of the 22. That's how badly they were mutilated. One of the Tongan warriors counted the dead and reported it to the chief. And the chief was just chilling in a hammock on the deck. And then immediately after, the dead bodies were thrown overboard. Mariner and the cooper were presented to this chief. And then another chief took Mariner on shore while the cooper remained on the ship. And while Mariner was escorted on shore, the escorting chief made him remove his shirt And at the time mariner was just ready to die and he says the circumstance of having just escaped death was by no means a consolation to me reserved for i knew not what hardships i felt in my mind hardened by a sort of careless indifference as to what might happen if i had any consoling hope at all it was that i might be going on shore to be killed by the hand of some chief not sated with that day's slaughter. On the northern part of Lifukahaapai is a little village called Golo, and Golo was where they were taking Mariner. And so as this chief was escorting Mariner to Golo, and as they got closer to Golo, Mariner noticed that there was a dead body on the beach, and as they got closer, he recognized the body as Captain Brown. Oh, Captain Brown, if you had just listened, if you had just listened to your crew, if you just listened to the Hawaiians on your crew, they were telling you no, but you didn't listen. There were so many red flags and you did not listen. And you went on that walking tour and look what happened to you. Poor Captain Brown, you would have been able to save the life of your crew if you had only just heeded the signs. Ah, I do have to say, you know what I liked about Captain Brown? I think given the violent history of the Port-au-Prince, you know, it was um, involved in the slave trade, it was raiding Spanish ships, and it was pillaging, nunneries, and um, most of it was done under the leadership of the previous captain, Captain Duck. But I think Brown seemed more like a pacifist, and, um, you know, maybe that's why the crew didn't respect him as much as they did Captain Duck, And maybe he was just tired of all the, you know, violence and everything that they were doing and just wanted to get home. But, you know, um, whatever it was, it cost him his life and that of the crew. And now Captain Brown is dead and perhaps the rest of his crew, except for Mariner. So remember that meeting in the captain's quarters with Captain Brown, with Dixon, with Vaca Utapola and the unnamed Tongan chief. Mariner finds out later that they successfully, though by accident, evaded an early death. Or maybe they prolonged an inevitable death, but apparently while they were meeting, so that meeting was happening and the canoe was supposed to come under the stern and then Vakautapola was supposed to get up and call out to the canoe. And the plan was that Captain Brown and Mr. Dixon would get up also to, you know, check out and see what's going on. And as they were doing that, they were going to get clubbed from behind. So, you know, those two were very shady from the very beginning. However, this plan was thwarted when, um, remember when they all started boarding, when all the Tongans start getting on the ship and started making the crewmen nervous. And then the crewmen came down to um, get uh, Captain Brown's attention. And so that's what disrupted that whole thing. And Mariner recalled later that uh, Vagautapola and the other chief, they like totally turned pale because they thought that their plan was discovered. You know, you should have listened to the Hawaiians. The Hawaiians were right all along. So there lying on the beach was Captain Brown's dead body, naked and bruised in the head and also in the chest area. The Tongan natives asked him, using words and signs, if they had done right in killing him, and Mariner didn't answer. And, like, who, who does that? I wonder what he meant by that. That's very interesting. Tongan natives asked him, using words and signs, if they had done right by killing him. Hmm. Anyway, Mariner didn't answer, and, I mean, what the hell do you say to that, you know? Anyway... One of the natives didn't like that Mariner didn't answer, and he lifted his club to hit him. But then another uh, person intervened and stopped it. Man, these people, you, y'all gotta stop being so itavave. And so uh, he intervened, stopped this person from hitting Mariner, and then he ordered them all to take Mariner on a large sailing canoe. So, this could probably be referencing a tongiaki, which is, um, you know, back in the old days, they were using a tongiaki, a huge canoe. I think uh, a tongiaki was probably like 80 feet long, maybe a little bit longer. Those are the canoes that they were using to sail from uh, Tonga to like Fiji and Samoa, or possibly a kalia. And a kalia is a little bit smaller and quicker than a tongiaki. So they put him on a canoe, and they're moving to a new location. And as they are uh, traveling, Mariner observed an old man on the beach, and he's parading up and down with a club and just kind of looking menacing. And he has a club in his hand. And at this point, a little boy uh, comes on the canoe, and he points at a fire in the distance. And then he looks at Mariner, and he says to him, "Mate." And in Tongan, mate means dead. Can you imagine just having a really shitty day like the day Mariner just had and then you're like so down and then this little kid comes and teases you and tells you uh, mate or die little shit. And he's not just telling him mate, he's actually pointing at a fire. So there's a fire off in the distance and he's pointing to the fire and he's telling Mariner mate. And so Mariner thought that this fire was meant for him and that he was going to be killed and roasted. From the book, Mariner says, This idea roused me from my state of mental turper and gave me some alarm, which was not lessened by the sight of the old man just mentioned, who appeared to me in no other light than that of an executioner waiting for his victim. I would probably be thinking the same thing. Good lord. A half hour later, the canoe lands at its destination. And a group of people come to the boat and they take Mariner off the boat and they start leading him towards that fire. You know, the fire that that little kid was pointing to earlier. Okay, so remember last episode, there was a crewman who wanted to... He didn't feel like careening, remember that guy? And then he was like telling Captain Brown, F this, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to leave. And he made threats with a Spanish stiletto that he was going to kill any bastard that was going to try and stop him. And so he took all his stuff and he went ashore, and then two other people followed him. And then 15 other crewmen saw what they did, and they all decided to also jump ship and go ashore. Well, guess what? As they were leading Mariner towards the fire, he sees three more dead bodies, and that was James Kelly, William Baker, and a guy named James Hoey. They were dead AF. So they finally get to the area where this fire was burning, and then they brought out hogs. And Mariner was so relieved because he realized that he wasn't on the menu that night. And then he comes to realize that the kid that was on the boat wasn't telling him that he was going to be dead. He was trying to tell him that his crewmen are dead. And he was pointing to the location where the bodies were laying. They led Mariner toward the island of Foa. And along the way, Myrna was stripped of his trousers, and he was pleading, he was like, no, not the trousers. But they were all like, shut the hell up. It probably went something like this. <laughs> That's usually the verbal abuse you get preceding a beating from a Tongan parent. At this point, Mariner was just so worn out. He had sunburns, he had no shoes, he was like blistering all over. And as they were walking, natives would walk up to him and like put their skin next to his to compare. And they would liken his skin to the skin of a scraped hog. Okay, now anyone who has ever been involved in preparing a buaca to be roasted, you know exactly what these people were doing. They are... You all some mean people. And not only were they doing this, they were spitting on him, pushing him. They threw sticks and coconuts at him. And Mariner had these cuts on his head from all the things that they were throwing at him. Have you ever been hit by a coconut? Yeah, it hurts. It hurts. Oh, these are some mean-ass Tongans. At some point, while they were walking, a kind Tongan woman and witnessing all these horrible things that are happening to Mariner so she gathers some tea leaves well in tonga we call them sea but everywhere else they call it tea Um, and she put together just a little something that she could use to at least cover his body thank you kind tongan woman thank you you are the wind beneath my wings did you ever know that you're my hero you're everything everything i wish i could be okay sorry about that So they arrive at their final destination, and in the book they call it a hut. And I'm going to tell you something, I hate the word hut because it uh, insinuates that we, um, our ancestors were like these primitive cavemen, but they weren't. And if you truly understood the architecture of like a ancient Tongan fale or even a Samoan fale, you would know that they were just as sophisticated and it involved a lot of math and a lot of science, just like the revered structures that we know of in Western society. So they arrive at the fale and they put Mariner in a corner while they all take a break to drink kava, which is like so typical of Tongan men. Hey, let's take a break and drink ava. They motioned to Mariner to sit down because they were about to receive in their company an important person. So they all sat down and then a man enters the fale and he was like in a hurry. And he tells them that he has been ordered to take Mariner. So it appears that this important person was no longer coming to the fale and there was a change of plans. And so um, this man comes and he takes Mariner. And as they're walking, they encounter one of the Hawaiians that was part of the crew. And he tells Mariner that the king of the islands has sent for him. Mariner will finally get to meet the man who was behind the destruction of the Porto Prince and its crew. So Mariner finally arrives in the residence of what he believed at the time to be the king. Most likely he was the highest ranking chief of the island at that time, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But remember, everything that happened on the port prince and all of the chiefs that were there, they all would have been acting under the orders of this chief right here. So according to his words in the book, When I arrived in the king's presence, the king beckoned to me and made signs that I should sit near him. As I entered the place, the king's women, who sat at the other end of the room, at the side of me in the deplorable condition in which I was in, with one voice uttered a cry of pity, beating their breasts and exclaiming, Oyawe si oto And interestingly, si Otoofa is actually the old way of greeting. And so Tongans back then used to say si oto ofa, and maloelele today is really more of a recent phenomenon probably due to the influence of Christianity. I'm gonna do more follow-up on that and do a little bit more research on that because I think that would be so interesting for our next Q&A. So in some of my research, I was trying to find more information on this, but um, a paper written by Winston Halapua, he says, ofa implies the interconnectedness of individual life to the ancestors, environment, and the future. Reciprocity means voluntarily extending life with all its interconnectedness and mutuality to the person encountered. And with that said, I think we all need to put Maloylele to rest and let's start using Si Oto'ofa. And so Mariner is in the company of the women of the king's court. And they are all just like, you know, having so much pity on him. And I could totally see that because, you know, Tongan mothers, well, not all, but uh, are very um, nurturing and very caring and very loving. And so this person that Mariner uh, perceived to be a king was actually one of the highest chiefs in Tonga at the time, and his name was Finau Ulukalala II. Though we have no mention of this earlier in the book, but Finau Ulukalala was on the ship and he noticed a very young Mariner, and he had taken a liking to him from the moment that he had seen him on the Porto print. And he had thought that Mariner was the captain's son. So he gave orders that they should preserve his life. And then he greeted Mariner with what looks like to me like a hongi. So, you know, the Maoris, when they greet each other, they press their noses. And that's what we call a hongi. And in Tonga, we also used to, this used to be common practice. And in the book, it's described that uh, Finau Urukalala pressed his nose on Mariner's forehead and I'm assuming that the reason why it was from nose to forehead was that um, well either he just uh, did that on purpose or that maybe Mariner did not know how to properly greet him back. So two things we just picked out from the book that is no longer in practice. The way we greet each other with Si Oto'ofa and then the Hongi. Um, we don't Hongi anymore as and a lot of that is because of Christianity. So then after Finau Ulukalala greeted him, and he noticed that he was wounded and that he was dirty, and so he um, had one of his women attendees take uh, Mariner to a pond and clean him up. And the dirt wasn't coming off his feet, and so the attendant went and got some sand and then began to scrub his feet with it. And then Mariner was complaining, Oh, it hurts." It hurts, it hurts. And then she said something to him that he didn't understand, but I bet you it went something like this. <laughs> We all know this. We all know the things Tongan mothers say to us when we don't want to take a bath, right? So they cleaned him up, and then they brought him back in the presence of the king, and then he was sent to the other end of the house, and they oiled him down with some sandalwood oil. And have you smelled sandalwood oil? That smells so good. So in Tonga, like one of the prized perfumed oils is... When you take coconut oil and you infuse it with uh, sandalwood, and it's called, in Tonga sandalwood is called ahi. And um, it is one of the most uh, beautiful, lovely smells. It reminds me a lot of my grandmother when she used to make uh, Tongan oil uh, when I was a kid. Mariner says I was oiled all over with sandalwood oil, which felt agreeable, alleviating the smart of my wounds and was greatly refreshing. I now received a mat to lie down on where overcome by fatigue, both of mind and body, I soon fell fast asleep. During the night when he was asleep, uh, one of the attendants woke him up and offered him some food and uh, she brought him a buaka, so a piece of baked pork and some yam. And Mariner did not want to touch the pork because he wasn't sure if it was pork. What if it was one of his fellow crewmen that have passed? And so he ate the yam and then Mariner went to sleep. Finally get some restful sleep. But is he truly safe? What does Final Ulukalala want with him? What happened to the Cooper? Are there any other survivors? Why is Tuitui Tui acting so shady? Tune in next time to the Toki Uka mea podcast. Before we end today's episode, I think we need to just take a moment. And honor those who have passed on in this episode. Captain Brown, Mr. Dixon, James Kelly, William Baker, James Hoei, and uh, many others who we don't know about. This song is an old uh, Tongan song. It's what we call a Hiva Um, It's a farewell song. So farewell to all of you. Oh, Captain Brown. Anyway, I want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate all your love and your support. And uh, tune in next time. We will have our Q&A up. Um, I see some questions that are already coming in for the first episode, which is cool. But if you want to send questions about this episode, please do so to Wolfgram, r-w-o-l-f-g-r-a-m-m at gmail.com. Or leave us a voicemail using the handy message feature on our anchor page. Malo Alpito and hey, si Otoofa.